how chaotic can a life be? That's the focus of what I'm talking about today, relocating from the other side of the world, finding accommodation, employment challenges, uh, a marriage, two young children. Today's author, Paul Dalgano, in his biography, And You May Find Yourself, tries to sort it all out. So, Paul, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Now, this is a sort of multi-layered discourse, uh, if one might say, but life is chaos, and we get that from... The very opening. I mean, Jess was panting when I got in, her into the creaking hold and over. Her contractions were three minutes apart. I knew because I'd been monitoring the hands of a broken watch on a burst spring sofa. It sounds, well, chaotic. <laughs> yes, um, I, I think it was a chaotic um, period. And um, as you've signalled there, it started off chaotic as a period. And um, I guess like all chaos, it doesn't have a neat starting and a neat finish by its definition. So... That's the point at which I've started the book. But, yeah, the, the chaos is ongoing. But it also would seem to be... It was also part of your earlier life as well, this sort of chaos, intermittent things, relationships, uh, with family, girlfriends, all sorts of things. How um, sort of endemic was it in your life, this notion of chaos? Um, I think, uh, I mean, when I was growing up, um, there weren't that many people, certainly in my circle, doing things like backpacking or going to different countries. Nobody in my friend circle or my family had been to university so I was um, the advanced guard in that sense I went to university um, I started going backpacking and like lots of people I think in my generation um, there's there's this idea that you can do that that you can go to a different country things will be all right you just need to get your plane ticket and that um, was essentially my approach for a number of years I lived in South America in Spain in Italy and there was always very little planning, as there was when we came to Australia, um, more for less. But um, yeah, the, the idea of having to plan things through and um, arrive somewhere with a set plan hasn't really been my style of doing things, largely because I run out of time with whatever I'm doing and it's just, okay, so next week we're going to you know, Chile or wherever the country happens to be. And so um, as a result of that, I mean, what happens, and not just to me, but to lots of people from kind of from now, is you go backpacking, you live in different countries, and of course you meet somebody, you fall in love as you would in your 20s, and that person happens to be from a different country, and in my case, from the other side of the world. And that all seems fine. I mean, I, I met my wife in Italy, and we didn't think, hang on, this might be a problem. I'm from Scotland, she's from Australia, we're in Italy at the moment. You you just fall in love and by extension of this idea of everybody being in different countries and spending a little time um, abroad, you enter these complicated situations and decisions around where you're going to stay, what happens when kids come along, how you deal with leaving family at one side of the world and going to family at another side of the world. It sort of leads to a, an existential crisis. Who are you? What are you? What country do you belong to? Or where does your identity come from? Were these parts of the challenges? Um, Yes, absolutely. I mean, the existential crisis, um, I think, is a, is a common enough thing. Um, just recently, last, in the last couple of weeks, I became an Australian citizen. Um, so I now have an Australian passport. And uh, within 24 hours of getting that passport, I was um, leaving for South America for a work-related project that I'm doing. And um, at that point, I had to fill out the, um, the, the kind of landing forms and things for going to South America at which point they ask for your nationality and suddenly I find myself in a position of 
for the first time saying I'm Australian. That's who I am. Look at my passport. I'm an Australian. And even when I was in South America and trying to work out the time difference between uh, so that I could talk to my kids, basically, I was looking at the time difference in the UK because there, there was a strange displacement. It's like, I'm, I'm not at home. Home is the UK. And then realising that actually, no, home's, home's Australia. That's where I live and that's who I am. Now, part of this novel is um, that, that, that an undercurrent with the relationship with your father, which sort of permeates a lot of what takes place uh, with your relationship with your sons and such like. But we've got um, you receiving um, a letter. Um, and I came back from university to our shared Aberdeen flat to borrow Alex's car. My parents were arriving for my graduation. At the foot of our staircase, I saw an envelope with my name. A Cambridge scholarship was awarded each year to the best performing student in English literature, and I knew instinctively I'd won it. Alex and I hugged in the kitchen, lit by June sunlight, the scholarship offer, my imminent graduation, and the congenital joy only people born in places like Aberdeen can feel when the sun is finally shining made me giddy on the drive to the airport. I was going to be an academic, leather elbow patches the lot. My parents had Spanish suntans, my mum was the picture of health. I waited until we were in the flat with Alex to show them the letter. It says it's partial funding, says my, said my mum. We can't give you any money. I know, I said, feeling winded. Isn't it great news, said Alex. It's terrific, said Mum. He's done really well. I looked at my dad, hoping he'd offer an opinion. He didn't. He watched Alex and my mum talking as cold as any stone. I flicked the kettle switch. Anger bubbled. How uh, significant is that relationship with your father? Um, what has it done in terms of forming your own identity? I, I think... I, I think um, with my dad, and again, I think this isn't necessarily personal to me. I think this is a, a common enough occurrence. I realised at one point, um, actually at the point that you've uh, just talked about, that on some level, most of what I've been trying to do in my life in terms of my own identity and my own achievements were really ways to reach that moment that we know from films and books where the father says, son, I'm proud of you, um, you've done really well, go forth and say, prosper. And what, what I kind of realised in that period was um, the opposite effect was actually happening. So the more I tried to gain my dad's approval through achieving things in my own life, the more distanced I felt um, from him and I think he felt from me. And um, as, as the first person at university in my family, um, you know, it kind of strikes you, although I didn't know the name for it at the time, but this concept of cultural capital is quite important. So um, I, I thought, you know, I, I kind of came of age in Blair's Britain and the whole um, mantra was meritocracy. So I absolutely knocked my pen in for five years to get this best degree and kind of imagined really that somebody would parasail down my uh, kind of flat where I was living in and kicking the windows and say, you've achieved it, you've done really well, we believe in meritocracy, here's a fantastic career and all the rest of it. And of course, what you come up against is the fact that um, if there is cultural capital, if you come from a family where, you know, they've been to university, they're in professions, they can give you a certain guidance that, um, in my case, just wasn't there through nobody's fault. Um, but of course, you, you could look at that situation differently, if, depending on your kind of family circumstances, if you get a Cambridge scholarship, some families might say, okay, well, obviously that's a good thing to do. You need to do that. It's going to be three years of 
difficulty, but th this is a clear opportunity to jump on. Um, th that's not so obvious when you don't come from a university family and people just... But it's also a different cultural capital that your father and your parents had. I mean, he'd given you an apprenticeship. Yes, no, absolutely. So his had he had different expectations or his role, his path in life was totally different. The two paths don't converge. Yeah, absolutely. And um, when I decided I wanted to go to university, um, I mean, nobody was pushing me to do that and nobody was even suggesting it. I, I for whatever reason, inherently felt I wanted to go to university. And at that point, I was actually working for my dad. I'd just gone through a two and a half year apprenticeship and was finally time served and ready to work. And, you know, of course, um, it's not going to be easy for him to then be told, um, actually, this isn't what I want to do. This this um, this kind of life isn't the life I want, which I imagine. And, you know, we've never actually discussed it, but I imagine would be wrenching because what you're actually saying is, your entire professional identity, everything that you are. I've had a look at it, I've trained up in it, and actually that this this isn't me, you know, I'm not your son in that regard. Um, so. Terribly challenging. But then there's the other end uh, when we get to uh, your father's dementia at the end where he thinks the house is falling down. Yes. Um, what sort of impact did that have? Um, it had a huge impact, and I mean, um, one of the things I was interested in in writing this book was the fact, uh, not just that I'm a parent, but I'm a parent of two boys, um, and so obviously that male-to-male, father-to-son relationship looms even larger because it's a it's an identical relationship that you, you've been through with your own uh, father, and. You know, at, at the time of having kids, both my parents were in absolutely perfect health, as far as anybody knew. And just after having my kids, both of my parents started becoming quite frail and quite young, including my dad, with um, certain mental problems and challenges and breakdowns, in fact. And I, I guess something I'm trying to look at in the book is the fear of contagion there. It's almost like if you knew all of this up front, would you have become a father? But at the time of becoming a father, everyone was healthy. I come from a traditionally long-living family. There's no huge illness running through But what, what you do say, had I known I was from damaged stock, I might not have reproduced. But now it was too late. Yes, which um, I guess, if anything, is um, a good trick by evolution. That the, the way the generations work out, generally we do have kids before we realise what's happening at the other end of life with our, our forebears. Um, and the influence they have. But also then this notion of your relationship with your father, sort of as you've already indicated, bleeds into your relationship with your two boys and how you treat them. You um, sort of overcompensate in a way. Yes, no, that's right. And, um, you know, I'm fairly prepared that at some point, maybe when they're 15 or 16, my kids will say, Dad, we're drug addicts and it's because you hugged us too much and all those trips to the park, you know, you, you were smothering in your affection. And I, I tell them I'm proud of them all the time. It, it, it's not, again, it's not the Hollywood feeling that you might expect where they look me in the eyes and say, my God, my dad's proud of me. It's, it's like I'm telling them, clean your bedroom. Um, so there is an element of overcompensation going on there. And a, and a, 
you know, fatherly guilt that you will carry with you all your life, regardless of what happens. But here we go then. You've also got the lifestyle you've been leading and then the notion of what you've got to provide for your two boys. Providing a sense of stability for the boys was a must, even if it went against our nature. They would benefit, hypothetically, from Jess and me being together. Jess and I would benefit from having ongoing access to them. It was less clear who would benefit from my sense of directionless disappointment bound by the very things I wanted to be bound by. So it's almost like this: these two conflicting forces. You've been leading an itinerant life and, as you say, around the world, come and go as you please. But now you're being... Is it being forced to uh, be stable or how do you see it? Um, I think putting food on the table is obviously an absolute imperative. And so whereas I'm, I'm pretty sure even now I could just pack my bags and go somewhere and get a bar job and survive, I, I think, and you know, I assume this is the case, it might not be, but um, when you have kids and especially when they're young, just that idea of taking care of the, the basics, the overheads, is um, crucial basically and if, if you're the person in that role there's no you know you might spend your lunch breaks fantasizing about different lifestyles or or different ways to bring in money lesser wages etc but um it, it's if that comes with it if, if that has with it the sense that your kids are going to suffer in any way then it's it's a no-go but how on earth can you provide a living through writing this is the other challenge you're a journalist yes yes i'm a journalist yeah. And, well, basically, very insecure profession these days. Yes. That's sort of been adding to the, the tension that you might be experiencing. Yes. Um, and, I, look, I was really lucky. I mean, I, I arrived in Australia with um, a portfolio of my writing and thought if I show that to um, editors at the age, they'll give me a job and my life will go on, which almost looked like it was going to work. Uh, they, they liked my portfolio and within a few days announced rounds of redundancies which is the nature of journalism these days but where I was lucky is um, my current boss at the conversation I knew him very briefly I'd met him once five years before coming to Australia but the link was that he'd founded the newspaper I was working at in the UK before coming to Australia and when we met for a coffee um, I had no idea that the conversation was a thing um, or would be a thing and he told me at that stage that he had an idea for a website, it might work, it might get funding, it might not. And he was looking for editors to jump on board. Now, for, um, for somebody that's in a stable job and has money coming in, that would probably be a risk uh, to, to take that risk. I mean, startups fail. That's generally what they do um, in journalism as much as anything else. But I had uh, no irons in the fire. I had no job. We had literally run out of all money. So, of course, from the moment he said, I'll, I'll be looking to hire people, my only question was, when can I start? And, well, basically, uh, we're going to actually have to draw the uh, interview to a close, but that existential crisis is there. The role of men uh, in terms of relationships, finding employment, relocation... But we end, Collier and Finn were my sons. I was their dad. Jess was their mum. I was their husband. Um, and basically, you've moved, you've changed uh, worlds, so to speak. And uh, do you think you've found stability? Um, I think we're in a period of stability, um, um, but that could change at any moment. And you may have found yourself. Paul, thank you for coming in today. Right. Well, I'm going to be speaking with Shirley Barrett about her book, Rush O. Well, my story is set in uh, whaling season, 
1908 in Eden, which is a little town on um, the south coast of New South Wales, about six miles, out, six hours out of Sydney. And Eden, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, used to be a whaling uh, port, if you like to call it that, where whalers would row out from shore, shore shore-based whalers, and when the when the whales travelled up the coast and down again on their annual migration, um, they'd often stop and rest a while, um, more's the pity, in uh, Twofold Bay at Eden. And, um, you know, the whalers would obviously go out and, and harpoon them and um, then kill them and render them into whale oil and all the rest of it that yeah, happened. Throwing the harpoon and wielding the lance, mm. you know, it was quite a physical thing, I wasn't re- it? Oh, yeah. And, I mean, there were just, there used to be two whale crews in two little boats and uh, the boats, you know, were very vulnerable little wooden wooden boats, rowboats, you know, mm. and these men would have to row out and get close enough to the whale to be able to utilise the harpoon. From that point on, the whale would, of course, try and get away, desperately try and uh, get away and tow them around the bay. And then when they was, when the whale began to tire, they would be able to get close enough to, to lance it and yeah. kill it. Yeah. Types of whales. Now, this is something mm. I, I realise too, because there's one that I've, co- I've heard of, the southern right yes. whale. What, what makes it right? It was the right whale to catch. It's also known as the black whale, <laughs> confusingly. It was the right whale to catch because it had a lot of baleen. Uh, whale bone, as they used to call it, in its mouth. which was, And whale bone, bone was used for all sorts of things, but particularly ladies' corsetry, umbrellas and so forth, a lot of sort of not very vital-sounding things. <laughs> but the whale oil, of course, was was used um, as, as a, you know, for, for lubricating machinery and for lighting and, uh, so and so forth. around 1908, mm. one whale mm. would would be worth about 200 pounds in oil or a thousand pounds in whale That's bone. right. It's astonishing, isn't it? That so, is uh, yeah. So it was important that they caught an old, an old whale because their whale bone would be longer and, and thicker from what I've gathered. Okay, so we've got the, the whalers mm. in two rowboats. Mm. Then we have a pod of killer mm, whales. That's right. Now, what are they doing? Well, I mean, this is what's the most be- sort of extraordinary part of the story and why it's unique um, to our history is that a, this pod of regularly returning killer whales, each of them known by name to the whalers, they were identified by their distinguishing characteristics of their dorsal, dorsal fins, um, would, would regularly arrive in Eden just prior to the arrival of the Whales, you know, the first appearance of the whales of the um, of the season. They and they, this was I've, I did a lot of research in the Eden Observer and South Coast Advocate, which was their local newspaper at the time. And when the, the killer whales turned up in the bay, there was always an excited little snippet in the in the newspaper. Oh, the killers are here! The killers are here! It won't be long now. And so what the killers would do was they would cooperate with the whalers. So often they would um, swim over to the whaling station, one one designated killer would flop tail. Um, which was, you know, uh, smack, smack its tail down upon the water to alert the whalers that there was a whale in the bay, lead the whalers to the whale where his um, cohort were busy corralling the whale. And they, you know, they would work in highly organised groups. Um, you know, the killer whales are, n- are known for their sort of highly organised predatory um, <laughs> behaviour. But they would, you know, some would herd the whale off, some would pursue the whale and nip it at side fins, others would jump across its blowhole, other, others would prevent the whale from diving. You know, it's horrible. It's horrific, of course. But um, there's a small part of the story that I, I found kind of a, 
really um, appealing. And that was, I think, the the affectionate relationship between the whalers and the killer whales. Well, you know, the whalers were very affectionate, obviously, towards the killer whales. Mm. And they, uh, you know, they knew them by name. Um, they, you know, they, they, uh, so what happened, I should just finish my story and explain that after the whale was killed, the killers would take the carcass, pull the carcass underwater, and they would eat only its tongue and lips. The tongue uh, the and The tongue and lips. lips, which must be a killer whale delicacy. <laughs> and then they'd, um, uh, the rest of the, the whalers had meanwhile anchored the carcass, etc., and, and marked it with a marker boy so they could re- return and find it again. After, you know, 24 hours or so, the carcass would uh, gas up with gases and float to the surface, and then they'd the whalers would take the the remains back. Oh, row it in, and row it in. Very it, arduous work, huge amount of work. Oh. <laughs> Look, I'm, uh, through your book, Rasho, there's quite a few co- quotes from the Eden Observer, the newspaper, mm. and uh, this is one. Just as much friends to the whaling crew. This is quoting about the killer whales as a cattle dog is to a drover. Mm. And I thought that's pretty good. It's a lovely quote, yeah. that, uh, and that re- seems to be really how they saw them. And certainly, when Tom, the most famous killer whale of them all, when Tom died in uh, 1930, I think from memory, I wrote the book. Yes, but I- yes. <laughs> it got quite an obituary. He got a, an obituary of two to three hundred words in the local newspaper and a poem. And a poem. I mean, we'd be doing very well if we did it, it as well as that. And Tom's skeleton is still in yeah. Eden. It is on and display at the Killer Whale Museum. It's still, you can sort of see in its in the skeleton mm. the uh, the teeth, mm. and one has a groove. That's because right. Because Tom was a little bit of a a scallywag. A, a scallywag, <laughs> and what he used to do was, was when the whale was harpooned, and the whale was racing away. You know, the the towboat, the rowboat would be pulled after it, but quite often Tom would. Bite into it. That's right. What he, on that taut whale line, the whale, the line between the whale and the boat, Tom was certainly. I know he's identified by name in at least one newspaper article, but but certainly uh, a killer whale had done this at least three times in the papers that I that I that I found. He would jump on and hang on to this taut line by his teeth, seemingly. For the pleasure of being dragged forcibly through the water, there was there, no one else could figure out why. It used to annoy the whalers immensely because you know they really ran the risk of um, being, of losing the whale, of the whale of the line being pulled out completely of the boat. They just didn't need a killer whale hanging off it, basically, to add to their problems. <laughs> just for fun. Just for fun. And yes, you're right. In the in when you look at Tom's skeleton, which is a wonderful sight in the Killer Whale Museum, you can see what appears to be, although it is contentious, I should say. Um, a, a rope groove on one of his, his back teeth, uh, which seems to, you know, it certainly looks to me like a rope groove, but, you know, uh, there are other theories for it as well. Well, of course, we've sp- spoken a lot about Tom. Yes. Now I think Fearless Davidson yeah. should be, uh, should be oh, mentioned definitely. because, you know, he was he, he, <laughs> he was there. That's right. So George Fearless Davidson was the master whaler and, and, and George Davidson existed. You know, this is a true character. Um, that I've, I guess, appropriated for the telling of my story. And um, I, the reason I, I wanted to use his name, his real name, was because I did want to utilise a lot of the articles that I found in the newspapers because they're such great stories. And also it is his story. You know, he was an extraordinarily um, skill, skilled whaler and, a, by, you know, by all accounts, a fearless man, a very brave well, man. quoting again from the Eden Observer, <laughs> a wrought iron constitution and a heart like a black. Smith's ass. That's right. 
<laughs> so he was pretty impressive character. Okay, so we know he's true. We know mm-hmm. the whales are true. That's right. Shirley Barrett. Yes. What have you made up? Well, the rest of it, basically. <laughs> Which so, makes it a very good story too. <laughs> so I um, I loved the story and I, originally I had written it as a feature film script because I'm a you know, filmmaker and a director. And uh, I'd... And then I realised after banging my head against brick walls for several years that it was never going to get made. It's just such an expensive yeah. um, proposition, of course, with the, uh, you know, the, all the CG that would be required. But I love the story so much I, th- I kept going back to it. Now, I see this as a television step mm. series and every time I, I sort of read another chapter, yeah. I could imagine Mary that you've given us as an elderly woman Ah. sitting down, writing at her desk, remembering the year 1908. And then we'd fade away (laughs) into the characters and relive that particular memoir and see the people that she's Mm. written about and what happened to them. I I, I could see it. Well, I can get you to go and pitch it to the (laughs) networks. Um, (laughs) I saw it too for a moment there when you expressed it. Well, I look. I created for George a whole set of um, new offspring, basically. So I wanted, um, I wanted to be able to, you know, to have com- complete creative freedom. So, so uh, with the story I was to tell. So I, I kept George, uh, but I created a whole bunch of, of ch- new children. And the story is narrated by my heroine, a nineteen-year-old called Mary Davidson, who's George's eldest daughter. And, so um, she has responsibilities for looking after all the yeah, other kids. She's a bit beleaguered, actually. Yes, yeah, she's got to look after. <laughs> It and doused everything with lots of Worcestershire sauce, Worcestershire sauce, I mean, and, um, you know, and golden syrup. Oh, but from the very beginning, we know Mary has parked her broom in the corner and looked at a stranger in a mm. most positive light. <laughs> Who is this handsome and intelligent well, stranger? Well, this is the romantic, sort of enigmatic romantic figure, John Beck, for whom Mary falls. He's a he's a man with a little bit of a murky mm. past. He's suddenly turned up wanting to um, get some work in the whale boats, and Mary falls for him as as is her kind of you know tend- tendency, I have to say. <laughs> and um, he's an he's a very strange man. He used to be a Methodist minister, apparently. Uh, there seem to be lots of sort of strange stories rising up about what he actually. Did when he was a Methodist minister, um, and he we never really. I'm not going to go into any more detail because, no, of course, we don't know what, don't. what happens then. But but he's um, he's a very charming character, and uh, Mary falls for him and falls hard. Now, of course, where they live is so isolated mm. from anywhere else. Yeah, and uh, Mary is a. a keen reader. She is. And she's learnt all her flirting tactics from romance novels. Yes, which hasn't been entirely successful, <laughs> unfortunately. And she's had to practice on her brothers and her, her mm. uncle, her, who's quite hard of hearing. And it hasn't gone particularly well. So she's she struggles with the, you know, with the feminine skills of, um, of flirting and, uh, you know, just any kind of kind of Interaction with the opposite oh, sex so does not come so easy. Funny. Look, we also see the financial highs and lows. You know, if they can get a whale, they've got money. Yeah. If they haven't, they're struggling. Yeah. That's true. I mean, mm. that, I did, you know, going through the newspapers, there were years that would sometimes go by where they failed to catch a whale at all or if they caught it and left it to the killer whales before they were able to go back and retrieve the carcass, it would blow away in a gale if a gale rose mm. up and they would never be able to, ca- to catch it again. Which made that year 1908 so important. Yes, that's right. 
And, you know, she's got one younger brother, Dan, yeah. who's only 11 and wants to go out whaling. And, of mm. course, he's he's up for anything. And, of course, World War One comes it's along. It's just around the corner and, for him. Um, yeah. So we, we, get a, we, we do get her insight into what happened to the family. That's right. And yeah. you had them everywhere, Sarah. <laughs> uh, Shirley Barrett, you had them actually involved in so many things. Yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, the Davids, the real Davidson family certainly did lose a son in the First World War, as so many families, Australian families. Families and you know, obviously, English families and German families lost, lost, lost loved ones in the First World War. You know, there were, mm. um, so it wasn't unusual. But I think everyone was touched by that, and uh, and certainly the Davidsons were. Um, yeah, but I, I liked. I, I became very attached to my family, and I, I you know, as with all families, they had their share of, um, you know, of, of highs and lows. Mm. One of the funniest bits was when they, uh, when Mary made a cake and decided to take it down, and she, she, the whole family decided to come, which meant that they had to bring the horse out, which meant they had to bring the cow out, and a swooping magpie. It was just oh, brilliant. Great. It was a great. lovely visual oh, lovely. piece of yeah. Um, writing yeah. that I thoroughly thank you. I, I do like that sequence myself. It just reminded me of having to take my daughters out when you know for a walk and what you know sort of a disaster it would turn into. To, you know, after all. <laughs> Finishing with Mary, you know, as I said, you know, she's, you, well, you've got her looking back over 1908 and um, remembering and her whole knowledge. My heart was bursting with happiness and hope. I realised that I have achieved in writing this memoir. What's happened is I've opened up a great wound that has taken a very long time to mm, heal over. Poor Mary. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, Shirley Barrett, you gave I, I Mary the, the, the pot of whales, <laughs> the whole whaling industry. Yes. A, a, a light. <laughs> oh, I thoroughly enjoyed this Oh, book. thank you so much. I'm so pleased. I've been speaking with uh, Shirley Barrett. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.